this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. guys. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 13. We are looking at uh, a chapter today that is loaded with lots of prophecy, and it's a chapter that is, is fairly uh, complex and difficult, but the point of Mark 13 is not complex or difficult at all. Jesus is coming again. And we are to be prepared for that. And in order to be prepared, we need to be staying spiritually alert. So we're going to walk through the entire chapter this morning. And let's pray together before we begin. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now by the power of your spirit as we study your word. Our tendency is to to let down our guard and to... Uh, not be alert, not be spiritually uh, alert each day. That's what causes most of our problems, and it makes us vulnerable to the enemy. And so we pray that you would, would, would make us spiritually alert by walking with you closely each day, knowing that we're involved in spiritual warfare with an enemy, but also knowing that our Savior is coming again. And it could be any day, and we want to be ready, whatever day that is. And so use this text to help us with that as we study it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we adjusted our clocks. And uh, when you don't do that, when you forget to do that, some kind of funny things can Happened, and I remember one time uh, as a child, uh, it was the spring forward Sunday, like last week, and we were singing a closing song just before we went out, and a guy came in, and he 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 began to sing with us, and it was pretty obvious almost immediately what was going on. Our services were at a, used to be at eleven o'clock. And he was coming in thinking that he was joining the opening song probably at like 11.02. But in reality, it was 12.02, and it was the closing song. And so he came in, and he was just singing along. All this is playing out right in front of me. I can still see it in my mind's eye. And so the, the song finishes, and everybody around him is turning around and grabbing their Bibles and their purses, and the sanctuary is emptying, and he's just, he's looking around at all these people like, what is is going on? Well, his confusion was because he didn't adjust his clock. And this is one of those Bible passages where there's a lot of confusion if we don't adjust our clocks, and what I mean by that is this. It's a text where if we don't kind of turn our clocks, in this case, back, and understand what was happening in the first century when it was written, then we lose some of the meaning for our lives in the 21st century. The first thing that we need to do with any Bible text is to understand the original intent of the author. And in order to discern that, 
usually we have to know something about the context in which it was written. So in this case, uh, it's especially important that we understand that because in Mark 13, what Jesus is doing is he is sort of seamlessly transitioning between prophecies that were fulfilled in the first century and prophecies that will be fulfilled in the end times. And if we don't understand what was happening in the first century, then we miss some of the meaning of what's going to happen in the end times. So, as we walk through the chapter this morning, I want you to keep two things in your mind. If you do, it gets a lot easier. The first thing that we need to keep in mind is this. At the time that the Gospel of Mark is written, probably in the the mid-60s A.D., it could have been a little earlier than that, but probably around 64, 65 A.D., at that point in time, war is in the air. The, The war between Jewish people in Israel and the Romans was going to break out in 66 A.D., And the temple in Jerusalem was about to be completely destroyed in 70 A.D. And so Mark is written right as these things are ramping up. War and rumor of war is is in the air. And the temple is going to be completely destroyed just a few years from the time of the writing of Mark. That's one thing. The other thing to keep in mind is the terrible persecution of believers that was happening as Mark was written. And and so if you hold those two things in mind, then understanding the chapter becomes a lot easier. So let's look first of all this morning at the setting, the setting of Mark 13. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look teacher, what wonderful stones And what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So we've seen for the past couple of weeks as we were walking through chapter 12 that Jesus has been engaged in a series of exchanges with the religious leaders in the temple. And so now they are walking out of the temple, and as they're walking out, one of his disciples is just marveling at this temple complex, and with good reason, because it was incredibly impressive. So many of you know kind of the history of the the temples. The original temple was built by Solomon. It was destroyed in 586 B.C., and then about 50 years later, the, the Jews were allowed to build uh, another temple. It was not nearly as grand as Solomon's. But then, around the time of Jesus, Herod the Great comes on the scene, and he wants to build a temple that is going to blow away Solomon's temple in its grandeur. And so by the time of Jesus, the temple complex was about 35 acres, you could fit 12 football fields inside of it. Some of the stones, as as the disciple makes reference to here, what, what incredible stones. Some of the stones 
which you can still see in Jerusalem today, some of them were 40 to 60 feet long, one stone, and weighed well over a million pounds. And the columns and the porticos and the sanctuary, I mean, it was just incredibly uh, stunning in its grandeur. But Jesus here tells them something even more stunning. He says, do you see all of this? Every bit of it is going to come down. You know, this week as I was studying this, I couldn't, couldn't help but think about the first time that I, I visited New York as a child. And there, there comes that moment when, you know, you're driving up the New Jersey Turnpike and you can look over to your right and see the skyline of New York City. And in the 1970s, of course, what dominated the skyline of New York were the twin towers of the World Trade Center. And I know I, I probably said to my parents, look at that, referring to the twin towers. Well, imagine if one of them had turned around and looked to me in the back seat and said, do you see those towers within your lifetime? They're going to be gone. I remember on the evening of 9-11 after just you know, trying to take all of this in and process all of this throughout the day as all of us were doing that at the end of the day, one of the anchors on TV was they were broadcasting and there was the, the heap of rubble from the, the Twin Towers behind him and referring to the towers, this anchor said, they're all gone. They're all gone. That's what Jesus is is saying here, and, and so their jaws just dropped. What? This is the whole center of Jewish life, the temple. And Jesus says it's all going to come down. And so at that point, they make their way across the, the Kidron Valley, uh, up onto the, the, the Mount of Olives, and from the Mount of Olives you can look down and the, the whole temple complex is, is down below. And, and, and they, they, they want to know from Jesus, how, when is this going to happen? What is this? And so Jesus says in, in, in verses 3 and 4, it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now note carefully here. They do not ask Jesus when the world is going to end. They do, they do not ask Jesus, when are you going to come again? When they say, when will these things be, these things refers to the destruction of the temple. That's what Jesus has been talking about. You see, at this point, they don't even realize that Jesus is going to die on a cross in a few days, let alone that he's going to rise from the dead and ascend to heaven and come again. They don't even have a category for that at this point. When they are asking about these things, they're talking about what Jesus has just made reference to, that the temple is going to be destroyed. When is this going to happen? That's the setting of this chapter. And, and, and Jesus is going to talk about the end times by the end of the chapter, but that's not where we are at this point. So that's the setting. Second, we see the struggle. The struggle. Verses 5 through 8, Jesus begins to 
to teach. And he began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. So what is happening in the world as the Gospel of Mark is written? There was much instability. Uh, War was almost beginning to break out against Rome. And so there were wars and rumors of wars that were uh, in the air. Uh, There had been terrible famines that had just taken place within the past few years uh, leading up to uh, the writing of Mark, there had been earthquakes, the, one of the most famous earthquakes, the earthquake at Pompeii took place in 63, uh, that could have been, that was very close to the time of the writing of Mark, there was another terrible earthquake in what is now Turkey in 61, and so as, as Jesus is, is saying these things, and then also there had been uh, false uh, messiahs that have been running around uh, claiming to be the one that was happening as well and so as Mark's original readers hear that Jesus had prophesied these things they were nodding their heads going yes <laughs> this is what we're seeing this is what we're hearing this is what is happening all around us and let's look at verses 9 through 13 Jesus says but be on your guard For they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What was happening to Christians at this point? Uh, The Christians were being horribly persecuted. Um, they were being Jewish Christians were being uh, persecuted by their uh, fellow Jews. They were being delivered over to councils and beaten in synagogues. At the same time as this persecution was going on, the gospel was rapidly advancing throughout all the nations of the known world. There was terrible persecution happening against Gentile Christians as well. If Mark was written in 64 or 65, Nero was the emperor, and so you had Christians that were being uh, lit on fire and burned alive, Christians who were being crucified, Christians thrown to wild beasts. You had uh, families that, uh, that were disowning family members and things like that. And to top it off, Mark is written from Rome, right in the, the, the cauldron of, of the intensity of this persecution under Nero. And so as they're hearing this uh, again, they're, they're hearing Jesus prophesy that, that what they are currently experiencing was exactly what was going to happen. Now think about this. 
If you were in a situation like Mark's original readers, and, and, and you, were, you were going through all this, it's, it's, in, it's impossible for us to, to imagine, although it's happening today, and the shot referenced it a few minutes ago, but, I mean, just try to imagine, if you're in the intensity of this cauldron of persecution, then what would you be tempted to feel that things are out of control, uh, that God has forgotten you? What, what must Mark's original readers have, have, have felt when they heard that Jesus, Jesus said that this was going to happen? They, they must have felt incredibly reassured to know that, look, what is happening to us is exactly what our Lord said was going to happen to us. He said this is going to happen. It's, it's, it, this has not caught God by surprise at all. He said this kind of persecution was going to happen, and it is happening. He said the gospel was going to be advancing, and it, and it is advancing, and that's what we're seeing today as well. Nishat spoke about it, and he'll speak about it more tonight. The gospel is advancing in the hardest-to-reach places, but it's doing so in the midst of this terrible persecution of believers. Now let's look at verses 14 through 23. Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it not, may, it not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, look, there he is, do not believe it for false Christ. And false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Now, Jesus transitions from prophecies that were fulfilled in the first century to prophecies that will be fulfilled in the end times. We know there was a terrible tribulation that took place in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. as it was about to fall because the Romans came and they surrounded the city and they starved the inhabitants and people were resorting to cannibalism and just all kinds of horrific things were happening. And it was a, a terrible time of tribulation in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But, but Jesus says that time of tribulation is like a preview of a terrible tribulation that is going to come in the end times. And let, let's look back at verse 14. Jesus here makes reference to the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. So originally, this term comes from the book of Daniel. And in, and, and in its original context, it was talking about an abomination of desolation that took place when the Syrian general, Antiochus IV, came into the temple in Jerusalem, built an altar to the pagan god Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on the altar. 
And there was going to be a terrible abomination that was going to occur in 70 AD. The pagan general Titus was going to come into the temple area in September of 70 AD and ordered it all to be leveled. But see, these abominations again just like the tribulation that's going to happen in Jerusalem, these abominations are like a preview. They're like a scouting film of a terrible abomination that is going to occur in the end times, which Paul tells us about in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says there that the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the Antichrist of the end times. But see, here's what's happening. The events of the first century are like, they're like previewing the events of the end times. But this is the difference. This is the difference. In 70 AD, no deliverer comes. In the end times, the deliverer will come. That's the third thing that we see here is the Savior. The Savior. Verses 24 and 25. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now clearly here, Jesus is talking about things that have not yet happened. He's talking about things that did not happen in the first century. And clearly what he talks about in verses 26 and 27 did not happen in the first century. What does he say? He says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now again, Jesus is referencing the book of, of Daniel. He's referencing Daniel 7 and verses 13 and 14, which says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his, king, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. <clears throat> Think about the contrast between what is about to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem in just a few days and what is going to happen at this event that Daniel was talking about? What's going to happen at the second coming? Think about the contrast. So, in just a few days later in this week, Jesus is going to be placed upon a cross. At his second coming, he's going to take a seat on a throne. Later in this week, Jesus is clothes are going to turn red from blood at his second coming when he comes on the clouds of heaven in power and glory his clothes are going to be white as snow 
Later in this week, a, a crown of thorns is going to be smashed down upon his head. At his second coming, we will crown him with many crowns. Later in this week, Jesus is going to be spat upon and jeered and mocked as a king. At his second coming, Jesus will come as king of kings and lord of lords. Later in the week, Jesus is going to be crucified. The most hideous way that a human being could be destroyed. At his second coming, Jesus is coming to destroy all evil. But first... He must take evil on Himself. He must take our sins on Himself. His robes must be turned red with blood so that our robes can be white when He comes again. And until then, what does He call us to do? Stay awake. Verses 32 and, and following. Jesus says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And so Jesus is saying here that we don't know when he is coming, but we are to be ready whenever he comes. James Edwards says this in his commentary on Mark. He says, this preview of the future ought not lure us to calculate when Christ will return, nor to fear what will happen, but to know that he will come to claim his own. His coming is his promise, and the gathering of believers to him is our hope. And so, listen, our role is not to speculate about timing or about uh, details. It's to stay alert and Jesus tells us this little mini parable here about the, the master who goes away and the servant who is in charge of the, of, of the gate, the guard at night. What, what, what's his job? His first job is what? Stay awake. Stay alert. Most of our problems occur when we, are, when we're, we get spiritually lackadaisical and we're not walking closely with the Lord. And so Jesus tells us to, to stay awake and alert in light of his return. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, but, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. And you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and night. So be on your guard. Not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be Clear-headed. There's an Air Force pilot named Robbie Robbins who flew about 300 missions during the first Gulf War. And uh, when, at, at the end of the war, because uh, he and his crew had had, had, had so many missions, uh, they, they told him very quickly that they could, they could just fly home. And so they, they flew uh, back to 
Massachusetts and landed there, and then they, he and some of his buddies who were from Pennsylvania got in a car, and they, they made the long drive to Pennsylvania. And Robbie uh, got to his, his house uh, to see his wife and children, and when he, they pulled up in front of the house early in the morning, uh, but, but there was a huge banner across the, the top of the garage that said, Welcome home, Dad. And he thought, how did they know? <laughs> they barely gave me, they didn't give me any, any warning that I was going to immediately come home. How did they know? He thought it was going to be a total surprise. And so he, he walked in, and of course, kids are screaming and hugging him. And, uh, and uh, as he, he embraced his wife, he said, how did you know? And she said, well, we didn't know. She said, but we knew that when the war ended that you were... You were coming home, and we didn't know exactly when it was going to be, and so we decided we were going to be ready every day. That's what Jesus is saying here. Be ready every day. Every day could be that day. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would would make us spiritually awake and alert in light of your return, in light of the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in every day as believers. Lord, help us not to grow lackadaisical, and if, and if we have grown that way, um, then, Father, make us aware that we are in danger. We're vulnerable to attacks of, of the enemy. And w- when you come, and it could be any day, we, we want you to find us uh, just spiritually walking closely with, with you. And so help us to live every day in the light of your return. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you need to be ready, there's one way to be ready, and that's to know the Savior. And if you don't know him, we want to help you know him. And so in a moment we're going to stand and sing. And if you're here today and you say, I want to give my life to Christ, we're here for you. And we want to invite you to come. We'd love to pray with you and and talk with you. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about this church family, you say, I want to be a part uh, of what uh, the Lord is doing here as we serve and and, and, and await his return, then we want to welcome you. If there's just a need in your life for prayer, uh, we want to invite you to come. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine 
Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father. You are His child. You say, I love Him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.